One, two, one, two. I go by the name of DJ What, and you're now listening to the original Jeek Podcast. Let's go. Ready to make an entrance, so backward cut. Welcome back, Jeeks. This is your boy, Rock and Mr. Magic, and we are here once again to go down the rabbit hole and speculate on Watchmen. I am joined once again by my man, Commander Z. Man, what's up? What's up? How's it going? It is going, my friend. Well, the, the Commander is graciously joining us. Um, so he, if you hear anything in the background, it's because my man is pulling double duty as he's working and talking. So we are, we are going to uh, be gracious on the audio feedback side. Uh, and I'll try to edit out <coughs> any, uh, anything that may impede his speculation on what we got going on in the show. Hopefully Zoom co- cooperates this week. Yes, yes, we hope <laughs> Zoom cooperates. Unfortunately, last week we had some interruptions on parts that were really dope. Now we're a bit frustrated. So we're going to jump right down this rabbit hole here with episode two, Marital Feats. I'm sorry, Marital Feats. Martial Feats of <laughs> Comanche Horsemanship, which is an interesting title for this episode. Particularly to me in that uh, there hasn't been much mention of Native Americans um, at all. So for the title to have the Comanche particularly mentioned uh, in this episode to me is a big, hey, you know, we're going to introduce something new here. Yeah, definitely cool. So we have the first scene shows us uh, we're in a flashback with rows of women typing, um, presuming Nazi Germany, as everyone is speaking German. And a German soldier calls out for a, uh, a Fraulein Müller, who raises her hand. Uh, he inquires if she speaks English, types English. He confirms she does. And then he has her come with him to his office and dictates a letter out to uh, Miss Müller. I'm not going to read out the entire letter. Um, even though I typed it out in my notes. Um, but uh, in short, this is a letter written to the black soldiers in the United States Army um, from Germany, essentially saying, uh, hey, guys, you know, you're fighting for you know, your country, um, but why are you fighting for them? Do you, you know, he's essentially stating that the uh, American, the rich Americans have made some anti-German propaganda, causing them to, them being the black soldiers, wish to fight alongside uh, the other American troops, and that the Germans are being lied about. Uh, you know, essentially, say, hey, magic. I gotta say, this gotta be World War One Germany. That's in World War Two. Uh, yeah, yeah. This you is said this, Nazi. Yeah, yeah I Nazi, Nazi Germany, but. 
Yeah, yeah. It should it should be World War One with the timeline the way that. It yeah, works. with the timeline, yeah, this should be World War One. That is true. Yeah, so this should be World War One Germany. Um, the letters ask some good questions, especially for the time frame, um, as far as you know. Hey, can you sit at the same the movie theater as a white person? Um, you know, lynching and all these other cruelties are happening. So why are you fighting for them? And they said it's not that way in Germany. We don't, colored people here in Germany are, you know, businessmen and they're influential in the community. So come to come to Germany and you will find that we are friends. Uh, as the letter is being um, dictated, the voice narrating uh, the dictation changes from uh, the German soldier to a young black soldier and ends with uh, Will in present time reading out this letter uh, prior to, just prior to Angela pulling up uh, as he is sitting next to the dangling body of Judd Crawford. Um, on the back side of this letter uh, is the watch over this boy. So this letter that was written and read uh, is the same piece of paper, which it's gotta have some type of uh, significance as the story goes on. Which I, I have some speculation on that, on that significance. Go right ahead. I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around a, a theory around that. So, um, well, I have down in my notes. So Will, Will it ends up with this note, right? And um, it's being dictated by a German. And remember last week I said hooded justice and uh, Will, uh, they got to be the same. Mm -hmm. So, so um, Hooded Justice in the book was always assumed to be a German circus strongman. Right. So I'm, I'm starting to see them putting together um, a subplot where Will must be rescued by like maybe a, a I don't know if a, a, the whole circus is German or at least this German strongman is... Uh, is probably going to rescue Will and uh, maybe raise him. Mm, okay, I didn't see. I did not think of that. Okay, I can, I can see that. That definitely looks like that could be a a strong possibility. Okay, because we don't know where he is. Where we see young Will um, opening the letter as he's going through, uh, you know, a closet full of clothes. He's putting clothes on. Uh, we don't know exactly where he is. All we know is that. Uh, the letters being read, you know, from man to man there, and that we and we know how Will got the letter to begin with. So, him reading it himself as a kid before reading it as an old man uh, is obviously post, you know, nineteen twenty one. So that's 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 a strong possibility. I was wondering how Will would have got gotten to Germany as a child, but you know, there's still so much uh, of the story here. Or did well traveling circus, right? Maybe or he did, maybe, a maybe traveling he never circus. got. Yeah, and maybe he never got to Germany, but Germany came to him, so to say. And then he had this this letter in his pocket since he was a little kid, and found the first German he could, and said, "You know, help me out or whatever." That, that's another possibility. Total speculation. Yeah, Total yeah speculation. no, no, that's good speculation because <laughs> I I've been trying to figure out how that connection 
that's actually someplace my mind can actually travel. Yeah. So uh, what we have here that is a direct continuation from the end of episode one um, with Angela wheeling Will away and taking him to the bakery. Uh, she finds uh, the letter that we're just talking about. Uh, she starts some coffee and then enters her her little her little back cave where she's completely you know wigs out a bit, expressing her rage, shaking things, screaming. Um, she eventually calms down and then gears up as Sister Knight puts the whole shebang on. She comes out to talk to Will. Will mentions that she's changed. And they have a, a bit of a chat. She you know, interrogates him, essentially. Uh, I think she put her, she did the changing, trying to maybe even mimic uh, Looking Glass, you know, trying to put her face on so she could properly interrogate him. Uh, she, being Angela, asks Will who he is repeatedly, and he repeatedly responds with, I'm the, you know, I'm the man who strung up your chief. Uh, as they go back and forth, he mentions that there is a conspiracy in Tulsa, and that if she knew about it, it would, you know, pretty much make her head explode, so he's got to give it to her piece by piece. Uh, Will claims that uh, he is Dr. Manhattan, and that's how he killed Judd. Angela reiterates that he's on Mars, and he can't make himself look like regular humans. Uh, Will asks for his pills, and Angela, being Angela, says, okay, why don't you mind power them over to you? Uh, so then Will, it's like, okay, I'm not Dr. Manhattan. Uh, Angela gives some pills to Will, gives him a mug um, and some uh, water to drink. He takes his pills, and they finish their conversation. Angela takes the mug from Judd and bags it, uh, which in an you know, plastic bag looks like an evidence bag. And then she heads out. What did you think of this back and forth conversation with Will and Angela? Well, first off, do you notice how many times they, they mentioned Dr. Manhattan's on Mars? Yeah, they that's, uh, that was the first time. <laughs> Yeah, that's the first time of this episode, but uh, it's going to happen again. Right. And he also said, uh, Will also, when he's talking to, to Angela, he says um, he could be at, he could be in five places at once. Well, right. if, he's a, just, if he's just on Mars, he could be on Earth too. Yeah, he, he can make multiple copies of himself. He did mention that. And that obviously, you know, the size difference. And he did say that he could change his skin as well. So why can't? Um, he looked like us as well, which even though Angela scoffs at that, there's no real evidence to disprove, disprove that statement. There's nothing that suggests that Dr. Manhattan can't mimic, you know, human form. It's just, in, it's just an assumption that they make. No, and even like in the movie slash book, they said um, that blue is too blue for television and he like changes his yeah, he tones the blue skin down. Skin tone, right? Yeah. So if he could do that, what, like, hey, I mean, the guy could pretty much do anything. <laughs> yeah, he can manipulate any any molecules, any atoms. So why couldn't he change himself to look, you know, any type of way? Um, you know, we know that he pretty much hasn't done that because his he's ascended beyond that need for for that type of vanity, for lack of a better term, but. 
if he felt there was a need to mask himself in that way, there's no reason why he couldn't. From there, we, Angela heads out, uh, Washington, before she heads out, the reason why she leaves is she gets a page, uh, she makes a call, and she has to do a really good job pretending that she doesn't know that Judd is dead. Um, she does a good acting job expressing, like, oh my goodness, he's dead, I'll be right there. Uh, and then she leaves to head out to the scene of Judd's death. As she leaves, we come to a, an interesting small little scene here uh, where we see Seymour, who is a black newspaper uh, vendor, talking to uh, a black delivery, a younger black delivery man about the recent events. Uh, they mentioned the alien squid rain uh, happening simultaneously in Tulsa, Vancouver, Jakarta, and Leningrad. And I noticed he said Leningrad and not St. Petersburg. Right. And they happen all at the same time. Uh, Seymour claims it's a false flag by Redford, causing them to do this and uh, to distract them while the government takes their rights. Uh, the young man says, okay, so it sounds like you're voting for Keene, to which Seymour responds, and uh, obviously this is a safe-for-work show, so we're going to say uh, Seymour responds, screw Keene too, and that he is just a copy of his daddy. Uh, a young girl comes while they're speaking, picks up a stack of papers for an unnamed woman, and Seymour asks her, the young girl, if the woman that he if she's picking up for reads all of the papers. Uh, to which the young girl responds, yes, she does, don't you? And Seymour laughs and says he reads them, but he doesn't believe them. Uh, the little girl leaves, and the young man also leaves. So a couple things about, like, that. I... I think that little scene dropped a lot of breadcrumbs, man. Like they uh, they talk about Redford and um, his Libstapo, they call yes, it. Yes, Libstapo. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they they also mention the interdimensional thing and how the two of them disagree on whether it's a government scheme. And if you remember last week, um, that was one of the questions in the pod that yes. uh, that was asked. So. Like I said, little breadcrumbs to see where loyalties are falling within the universe, I think. Indeed. And I kind of felt that these were um, confirmational breadcrumbs, like the ones you just mentioned, like, hey, okay, we're going to solidify that a lot of people think about this interdimensional thing. Um, but also that a lot of these people really, they really don't trust the government at all, like regardless of who it is. Um, they are not very trusting of the of the authority uh, in the United States here, which is, was expressed in the letter. And obviously, 30 years later, 30 plus years later, um, it's still, that mistrust is still really strong there. Um, I'm, I'm curious to who this woman, this unnamed woman is, because, you know, people really don't get mentioned in this universe without there being some significance to them. So I, I'm wondering well, what you do with all the papers. Yeah, what should you do with all these newspapers? Are they like, uh, like in Men in Black, how they uh, the hot sheets? They, yeah, yeah, the hot sheets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was wondering that myself. Like, and, and maybe that's just her way of keeping up with what um, information or propaganda is being disseminated out there, um, and why she's having this little girl get it this you know girl scout looking girl girl she had that type of uniform on 
and why she's doing the pickup for her. And he also noticed that one particular paper didn't get released till later in the day. So he would throw that one in the pile for tomorrow morning's pickup. Um, right. So uh, I think the media is going to have a bigger role to play than they currently do right now. Because, like, don't forget that Rorschach dropped his journal off with the media at the end of the book. So that's true. So, yeah, and the fact that newspapers are still seeming to be prevalent in this uh, this universe. Right. Does, like now everybody just uses the internet. Right. Right. They, no, no one is buying physical papers. <laughs> you know, <they're, laughs> the, the newspaper they subscribe to is you, know, you get how many issues for three dollars on your on your tablet or whatever. Right. So interesting. I, I think that's a. It's probably a, maybe not a pivotal scene, but it's it's definitely a, a foreshadowing scene of things to come. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so uh, we return to Angela as she arrives at the scene of Judd's murder. It's now uh, way beyond daybreak now. Uh, before she can get out of her car, though, uh, Looking Glass enters her vehicle, and they discuss. Judd Crawford's death. Uh, Angela asks Glass if he thinks it's Calvary. Um, Glass, as he delivers his uh, his lines in the old unique way, uh, comments that it appears to be. He describes um, what Judd suffered through throughout the hanging and that Judd was alive until he wasn't. Um, Glass mentions Judd's wife when he called to notify her that uh, she mentioned they were at Angela's house for dinner that evening. Uh, Glass asked Angela if Judd was strange that night, meaning drunk. Angela says no, he had some wine. Glass then asked if he was high, which Angela confirms that Judd did do some blow. So that definitely seems like to me, and what we discussed last week, that drugs are either legal or that just these higher-ranking detectives knew about their chief's habits. I'm, I'm leaning toward, more towards the legal. Yeah, I'm, me too. Or at least decriminalized, you know what I mean? Like, yes. That's, that's, uh, that would seem to make sense. But if you did you pick up on the Rorschach line that uh, that Luki Glass dropped? But they, they got anything to eat? eat? Yes, the first thing he said when he got in the car, he got anything to eat. So there, I, I really, I really am picking up on them uh, tying him to Rorschach somehow. Although they definitely one, they look alike. The actors, right. yeah. the, the two actors look alike. Um, the Looking Glass, they, they've they've definitely done a great job with the lighting on his mask to make authentic Rorschach. Um, Images appear on his mask compared to the same stand, the, the the standard um, Rorschach masks on the Calvary guys, which they they look like what they are. They look like imitations, which I think is the point um, that they're bad imitations of what Rorschach was. Where Looking Glasses is a reflection of the real Rorschach compared to what the Calvary really is. Right. Good pickup. Also, um, I, I don't know. Did we discuss last week about the name of the Seventh Cavalry? Not really. We we talked about who they are, but not to you know why they're named that. 
Well, that's so that's custard's division during uh, his last stand, and they also mm. had another the other custard reference with uh, to Little Bighorn, right? So, and now that now the title this week um, is Comanche related, so there seems to be a lot of uh, little hints there. Uh, yeah. yeah, little hints going something something about Little Bighorn. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I did not pick up on the seventh part uh, with Custer, but you're, you're absolutely right. Wow. Okay. I, I, I totally missed that. And that's... Yeah, and, I, and I just that, caught it. I was watching something else and, and they said Custer. Oh, it was a, an old Twilight Zone episode uh, where these guys end up back. I like, I, I like to watch Twilight Zone a lot. And it's like these guys ended up back and they said, this is Seven Calvary. It's... Uh, it's Custer's division. I was like, wait a minute, Seventh Cavalry. That's Watchmen, so. right? <laughs> no, that's that's that's, and that makes sense to more for the title of this episode, and that has more significance. As you know, I was just I said, you know, there's not much Native American mentioning, but Little Bighorn, and that was a Native American's yeah. biggest biggest win in that struggle. So um, mm -hmm. that that makes a lot of sense there. Cool. Wow, it gives me something else to think about. <laughs> so as Angela and Glass continue to speak, um, Glass, uh, okay, so Glass makes a comment about the the alcohol and drug use at this uh, this dinner. And Angela says, hey, my kids were there. And Glass responds with your kids drawing uh, quite a glare and a slight little cuss out from Angela. Uh, she asks Glass if he's interrogating her now, and Glass responds with, why would he interrogate her? Uh, and Angela says, because he's cold. And Glass then asks her, why then is he crying under his mask? Which we, we'll just assume that he was. We don't know for sure. But. Yeah, we don't know for sure. They don't see any um, physical tears. Um, but that doesn't, of course, mean that he was not crying uh, internally, at least. Uh, so this moment is, is, is very tense. And then it's immediately broken up by a moth landing on Angela's car. Um, and a moth in this universe is a reporter with mechanical wings trying to capture... Uh, pictures or and or video of Judd Crawford's body. But it's the Mothman suit. Yes. From the Minutemen, which is like more more uh, Watchmen tech. Yes. Being disseminated into the general population, which is interesting. And, and unfortunately, they don't seem to know what they're doing with that tech uh, because these guys were flying quite erratically and being knocked out of the sky pretty easily um, by Red Scare and the other police. Uh, Red Scare is a bit agitated uh, by their presence, uh, destroys one of the mall's cameras, you know, beating on them angrily, um, gives an idea on how to properly take a picture uh, to one of them, and gets called a Nazi by one reporter, which Red Scare corrects him by saying, I'm not a Nazi, I'm a communist. <laughs> which is a communist who doesn't like, you know, freedom of the press, go figure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, 
Glass tells him to fall back. Um, Red asks Glass if he's in charge, to which Glass says no. And then, uh, rhetorically, pretty much, Red asks then who is, and we have no answer. Um, and we've got all three of them, Red, Glass, and Sister Knight, in this scene. So one of them is going to have to be the person who takes charge in the passing of Chief Crawford, who is going to be, um, it's kind of the, the, the question mark that is, is being asked right now, is who's going who's gonna to lead uh, this police force? I think we all are probably leaning towards Angela, <laughs> but that seems to be too obvious to be the right answer to me. I think that's going to be a uh, a subplot too, because I really feel like so they're set. They're, they're kind of like setting it up like the people who have the Watchmen tech don't know how to use it properly. Like you saw with Archie, how he got he like almost killed Judd, almost killed himself, and uh, oh, what was the woman that was with him? I can't remember her name. Oh, yeah, pirate, pirate Jenny. Yeah, pirate Jenny. So, and now like they show like people have the Mothman uh, tech, and they're you know like you said they're easily taken down. Um, so I think there's like there's still this like division of can the cops do as good a job as the Watchmen can? Mm. You know. So I think that's like maybe why Will is is starting to come around and say like you're you're fighting for the wrong team, you know? Gotcha, gotcha. So we go from there to Red um, yelling to Angela and mention that they've got to cut down um, Judd. So as they do, and they all work together, um, Angela grabs Judd's body, kind of hugs him um, in a gentle, you know, caring way. Um, and we get a flashback to Christmas at midnight when Angela is holding Cal the same way as they, they dance to Santa Baby. Uh, they have a you know, sweet little moment where she, he or Cal is teasing her. It's a couple minutes to midnight. And once it turns midnight, he's going to open this big box. It's on the Christmas tree. Um, Angela is like, no, no, no. You know, the whole husband and wife cutesy thing that wait till Christmas morning. Uh, a bump in the night happens, and Cal you know, makes a joke hey, that must be Santa Claus. Angela always on guard, saying, oh, someone's in the house. And we have, boom, a, a cavalry man comes in, he's got a shotgun, uh, shoots at, the, uh, at Cal and Angela, who Cal's pushed away by Angela as she ducks. Santa Baby starts to, continues to play, but it uh, slows down. And Angela is able to take a knife and subdue the attacker. Um, I believe she stabs him. In, I think she stabs him in the chest. No, is it the head? I think she stabs him like in the, around the neck. Um, Somewhere in the torso, yeah. It was the torso, yeah. Oh, it's always in the chest, chest and neck area. Right. And it puts him down. Angela then is shot by a second cavalryman. She's lying on her kitchen floor. 
the other cavalry man is clearly gone and the one who shot her walks up he's got his gun trained on her she is struggling to breathe she's calling out for her husband and we fade to black um, where we fade to judd's face right, right well, yeah we, well, we fade to black and then she and then she opened and we got an eye opening um to judd sitting next to angela in the hospital uh, he mentions that she's been out for three days and he sent Cal home to clean himself up because he'd been there the entire time, changed clothes. And Judd tells Angela that the cavalry attacked uh, 40 homes at the same time and a coordinated attack on police officers, all cops. She, he, tell, he tells her that he, that a guy in a Rorschach came in and got him in the arm, but he shot him and killed him tells her that the one she got bled out on her floor um, and that her partner and his wife were killed um, in bed but that the, their oldest son that their son Christopher took his two sisters into closet and they were able to survive the attack. Uh, Angela quite uh, angry says okay well let's go let's get anybody who's left and let's get these racist people uh, Judd tells her that all the other cops have quit since the Calvary knows who they are and their addresses. Angela expresses she's not quitting, and Judd says and he won't either. They establish what I think is the beginning of their relationship as they kind of break the break the uh, break ranks, for lack of a better expression, and they start calling each other uh, on a first name basis here. Yeah. And eventually the kids start calling him uncle, right? Yes. And we also find out we also find out why her kids were so light skinned, which we discussed last week. <laughs> well, we don't find out. Well, we don't find out till confirmed fully till a little bit later, but we get the first uh, breadcrumb in, into that. Um, she says Topher. He he calls himself Topher, and she, in the first episode she was calling him Topher. So. Yeah. And they now that's when they the first light bulbs. I was like, okay, okay. Um, and then she man, she said, he said Christopher. She goes Topher. He goes he prefers to go by Topher. Um, so the, from there we go back to the present uh, as the scene at Judd's body, where Red says that they need to go back to Nixonville to find out who did this. And just says they should hold on, take a breath. Uh, but ultimately can't give a reason on why they should wait and and goes along with them. At Nixonville, we see the full scope of Nixonville, a big Richard Nixon doing his classic victory pose um, in caric caric caricature style statue outside the front of this massive trailer park. Um, Reg gets up on top of a police vehicle. You've got tons of um, you know, uniforms with them, threatens to tear down their precious Nixon statue idol if they don't get into the paddy wagons and come so they can interrogate them, find out who killed their chief. Uh, as Red is finishing up his speech, uh, a bottle is starting him, so he clearly, uh, and as easily ashamed as he is, looks upset. Angela tells him he, it doesn't need to go down, but he orders for all of the uniforms to round up everybody 
uh, Calvary or not, um, into the paddy wagons. Glass and Angela stand and watch. Uh, Glass comments about Angela not joining in the fight, as they all know that Angela loves beating up uh, Calvary people. Uh, she declares that it is unnecessary. As they're talking, a man rushes up to them. Angela pushes Glass up the way, beats down the man, and continues to pummel him uh, despite having the full advantage and does not stop until she regains some self-control uh, over her emotions. Uh, she gets to her vehicle and take, you know, takes some deep breaths, uh, pulls her mask down and looks ahead of her as she sees the mug that she had collected from Will on her dashboard. She had temporarily forgotten about it as uh, Glass had moved it when he got into her vehicle. Uh, see, no, I should, before we see, see move on, uh, what did you think on this scene uh, in Nixonville here? Well, so to be clear, not everybody in Nixonville is Seventh Cavalry that they know of. They just, right. they just kind of like assume, and they're, I mean, they're they're almost like stereotyping anybody who lives in this trailer park as you know, racist, and we don't we don't know that to be true yet, you know. Right. So then they go in there, and then like you know, Angela's like, "This is a bad idea. Why are we, you know, we're kind of like harassing these people." And uh, then her her mind quickly changes when she uh, starts whipping on that dude. <laughs> so, hey, 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 he rushed her, eh? you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it started off in self defense, and it turned into and you know butt whoopings. <laughs> yeah, she she was yeah she was smashing him. I thought she was gonna kill him personally. I was like, oh, this dude's dick. She was just wailing on him. Right, but to me, that kind of shows like in like modern terms like what the what the cops have to deal with like they they start off with the best of intentions and then things go south quick and then you know police violence happens so yeah because that that, um, that that went from self like you said that went from self-defense to to a beat down that went from self-defense to you know police brutality right so um yeah it's a it's definitely an interesting scene um I think I think a lot of that is tied into some modern problems that that we have today. So it was interesting. No one in Nixonville, and they, and they made it clear. Red even said, "You know, I don't care if you're Calvary or not." Um, but nobody there seemed was willing to separate themselves from Calvary. Like no one was saying, "I'm not with them." You know, this had nothing to do with me. You know, they all start picking up things to throw and start spitting in the direction of the cops. Uh, so they were at least a little bit displaying a, a oneness of mind of those that lived in Nixonville. Right. <clears throat> or like maybe they, maybe they didn't want to be rats, you know, who knows like why, what their, their yeah, motives for their... It, it's complex, definitely. So, so then after um, Nixonville, Angela heads to the uh, Greenwood Cultural Heritage Building uh, with the mug in hand. And there are protesters outside uh, this building complaining about refrenations, holding signs that say, you got an apology, now you want more, uh, things of that nature. And Angela heads inside 
as we hear, you know, clips about different things uh, historically uh, that happened there in Tulsa. Uh, Angela gets to a kiosk and interacts with a program of Henry Louis Gates Jr., a.k.a. Skip. Um, and she tells that she, that she is Will, and it asks her, and she asks it to find out who, who Will is. The program says he can't help with that, but it can see if Will is eligible. Uh, and Angela says, yes, I'd like to do that. So the program then repeats to us uh, some of the history that we know about the Tulsa massacre and then asks for uh, permission to collect the DNA. Pops out a swab, Angela takes the swab and swabs the mug uh, that Will drank from and puts it back in the machine. The program expresses that um, only people who were in the massacre or those uh, descendants of the victims from that event are able to apply uh, for essentially for red predations at that Greenwood facility. Thought was uh, interesting that at first I thought actually say I thought it was repetitive at first that the program kept you know, reiterated what happened in Tulsa that was, you know, expressed, you know, multiple times, essentially in episode one. Um, but then it made sense to, at the end where it mentioned that it was for the benefits part portion and that only people from there could apply at that center. So it leads me to, to think that if you're applying for referations, you have to do it, you know, at least kind of like, a, you know, from your hometown type of thing. I actually um, got, a, got a lot of the book vibe off of that scene because uh, a lot of times in the books, like it, it, it's almost like the authors wrote the books so that if you didn't, if you perhaps missed an episode or, or whatever, it would like give you a backstory like real quick just to bring you up. Bring you up to speed. Speed. Like, is, yeah, why is Angela in here? Like, what what's going on with this whole Tulsa thing? And just in case you didn't see the first episode, this is why, you know. Or if you didn't, maybe if you missed, missed the rest of what was going on in that uh, very early scene in episode one, um, just to catch you up real quick as to as to why that was transpiring. And also, it's interesting to me that um, that she uh, she knew exactly what to do there so um it's it's hinting that maybe she has already done this for herself mm. you know not just trying to find out or does she does she know how to do uh the dna swabbing through the center because she's a police officer like there's so it brings up some some new questions as to did she did she already know that she um was entitled to red predations or um or did she maybe like maybe try and see if her if Cal was or you know like how did how did she know to do that? I guess is my question. Well, that's a great question. I would assume. Let me put it this way: if if the government right now said, uh, you know, descendants of you know slaves and descendants of uh, are entitled to X amount. Uh, pretty much, and as we learned from in this 
episode as well. The reformation essentially is that you don't you don't have to pay taxes anymore. So if that happened and descendants of slaves and let's say there was some bonus in, in, in our real life where um, if you also were a descendant of uh, from the you know your family came from survived the Tulsa massacre and your family was a part of the community um, that got destroyed to create Central Park or whatever and different things and if that happened people would know like people would talk like hey you know my family came from here in this area and because you know because i'm my my both my parents you know descended from slaves and you know they also my great-grandfather or my grandfather survived this i can get this so i don't have to pay this many taxes for this my family doesn't have to pay taxes for this amount of years or whatever people people talk people would know right what the process is i'm sure she didn't try herself before because she was born in now and that's why she didn't know any of this because if she had put her DNA in, she it assumed, was, yeah, yeah, it was told her about her father and Pruda told her about Will, um, and that she was a descendant of someone that came from Tulsa. Uh, so I think, in her, and I think that's you know, so there's no way she could have done it herself. Possibly Cal, like you mentioned, Cal, he may be from the area, he may have tried before, and the money that they have, uh, that little Tommy in, in episode one hinted about with Red Fredations. It may be Cal's mm -hmm. family money that their house is from, or the the bakery was built through. So, um, but but not on her side, because she definitely. Yeah, still, I still don't understand why she would be offended offended by that. But I guess I don't think, uh, I don't think she was. Uh, I don't know. Or because oh, I know why she. she no, I know. Called I, them a racist and. Oh no! I know why she's offended because the same reason why they are are offended. It's because, you know, hey, you know, slaves built so much of the country. You know, Tulsa was a growing, uh, the most profitable, the most affluent black community, and you burned it down with no reason. So why shouldn't we get what's what's owed to us that you stole, you know, for no reason? And, uh, and a sorry doesn't cut it. So when someone says that, people are like, oh, why, why, why do you think you're sorry? It's just okay when you, when you, had all this free labor and then you stole from us. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely why she was offended. Um, and that, that parallel plays on Twitter every day. So with, um, no, stay away from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm only on Twitter only, only so much because there's the, the activity on social media is one thing, but the negativity on Twitter is a whole other ball game. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so with um, so that that's that would lead me to think that she knew like how to approach the kiosk, but she hadn't she hadn't done it. You could tell this was her first time doing that. She wasn't used to the, giving the uh, giving the proper responses to the program and such. So mm -hmm. I could definitely tell it was her first time, you know, in the building doing that process. So then after which makes sense, which would. Which would explain why she didn't know what she finds out later. But. Exactly, exactly. Because yeah, if she puts her DNA in, there's no way she doesn't know about certain things. Then. Uh, so Angela goes yeah. from there and returns home. We see the girls inside dressed as owls playing pirate with Cal. And they're trying to make Cal, you know, walk the plank in their game. 
and we've got well, we more. We skip. We skipped over the scene. Um, Did I? With her on the her on the porch with uh, whoever. Oh, you 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 you're you're right. I'm sorry. You are correct. So Angela arrives home before she goes in and sees the girls playing. Um, there is a a white man sitting on her porch. And we also catch an image of the American flag, which is obviously different from our current version. Um, it's got a blue circle in the middle with the, the stars for the states. Um, I guess it's partially due to Vietnam being the 61st state. And uh, she and this, and this white gentleman have a confrontation. Uh, and at first, I, when I first watched this, I was like, wait, hold up. Did she have these kids with the white dude? Um, because then he mentions um, visitation, and he says he can't be denied visitation to the children, and that cow wouldn't let him in. Uh, Angela asks if he can take a rain check, and to that he responds that he'll take a real check. Uh, Angela rolls her eyes at him, takes out her checkbook, starts writing it, um, to which then the gentleman uh, makes another comment uh, about refrenations, asking how she's enjoying those red predations. She gives him the check and tells him to, uh, in safe for work, words to get to stepping. Yeah. So, um, real quick on the yeah, flag, on, uh, on the, if you notice at Nixonville, they had the, our current American flag. Yes. And so it's almost like that they're, they're making the American flag, our, you know, modern day American flag into the rebel flag. Yeah, kind of there. Yeah. It's or or I wouldn't say directly into the rebel flag, but what I would say is to using it the way some white supremacist groups use the Betsy Ross flag um, as they're hearkening back to their good old days. I mean, that's a closer correlation. Well, right. Well, that's, and that's, I mean, that's essentially what the Confederate flag is too, to, to people of the South. It's like what they considered the good old days. Yeah. You know? But I, I only draw <laughs> that, that comparison because um, it compared to the rebel flag, because <clears throat> the, it's not, they weren't trying to, it wasn't a war type thing. There wasn't no, there, there wasn't any seceding in this storyline. So that's why I hearken well, back that to we that. Know of, that. We don't know that yet. We don't know that yet. Like, but from, from, what, from they, what is shown. They touched on, they touched on um, how hard it was to get rid of Nixon. And that was like, they said he was in office for 30 years. And then Robert Redford came along. And so, you know, maybe there was some sort of rebellion. We're not, we're just like picking up the, and if you remember Judd in the first episode, um, the conversation where Angela said they starting this this uh, stuff up again, right? You know, maybe maybe the Seventh Cavalry has something to do with like a, a rebellion. That, that's a possibility, um, and yeah, I, I, I don't see enough breadcrumbs to say there's been a there was a full out you know like another civil war, um, which is why I don't draw the correlation directly to the Confederate flag, but. Um, it definitely is definitely a hearkening back to their, their perceived good old days. Um, but there's definitely, it took a lot for Redford, I mean, not for Redford, for Nixon to get out. But I think Nixon was out because of what Drake did, because um, he was, you know, that's pretty much when the transition happened where he was out, um, and King Sr. was trying to get in, and obviously 
uh, Bedford is the one who replaced Nixon. So he was near the end of his 30 years in the com in the book compared to where we are now, where Redford's pretty much almost been in office the same amount of time. So from that conversation, Angela goes in to see the girls playing dressed as owls, and again, the owl imagery, and playing pirate, which I think is a callback uh, to, mm -hmm. to pirate Jenny, who we do not see in this episode, but I definitely think that's a callback to her. Well, definitely the uh, the comic within the comic. Definitely, um, you know, hint within the hint, as Watchman likes to do. Angela and Cal have a little chat as the girls run off. Um, apparently, sometime off camera, we have had a conversation between Cal and Angela about Will, because Cal knows that she. When he grabbed him, he's first to him as the old man. He knows she took him to the bakery. And she he asks if she's arrested him. And she, she you know, pretty much confirmed that she has not. Um, she tells him what he said about uh, Dr. Manhattan. And he repeats what Angela said and they kind of chuckle about it. And Angela asks if Topher's up in his room where she then goes to have a little chat with uh with Topher and that to me was the the nail in the the nail in the coffin for the full confirmation that Topher and the girls were her partner's kids. Angela and Topher have yet another you know kind of heart to heart conversation as Topher is playing with this really sweet looking like floating Lego set that I'm really envious of. I was like, that was really cool. I know, right? Yeah, it was totally a maglev Lego. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, yo, this is, like, I was really distracted. I had to rewind so I was like, man, this thing is dope. <laughs> yeah, I'd love Where, to have that when I was a kid. <laughs> right? I was like, okay, this, this is, I'm feeling this. So um, Angela drops an interesting hint. Um, she mentions her parents, what happened to them, but she doesn't say what happened to them but she mentioned that something happened to them um, and ties it as a parallel to what happened to uh, Topher's parents and that she and Topher see you know, the world differently from everyone else. They see the sunshine and rainbows and they do not. They know what the real world is. So it definitely alludes that Angela's parents also had some sort of tragic or uh, horrific death. Um, Topher takes the news of Judd's Uncle Judd's death in stride, um, still playing with his toy as he mentioned. So he was a cop, you know, police, police officer, cops die. And he's like, yeah, he wasn't my real uncle anyway. Um, he asks Angela not to tell his sisters about uh, Judd's passing yet. And then he also, similar to Angela, has a little bit of a uh, outburst as he, um, very impressed he could do this with his own hand, slaps away the floating Legos and just kind of knocks them all on the ground. Um, it looks really heavy to be hitting with one hand like that for such a little kid, but maybe they're, maybe they're really light. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Angela surprisingly does not chastise him for this. He looks at her and asks if he can watch television. She gives him permission. Um, and they have asked to watch TV so many times in the show. Like, watching TV is definitely something significant, uh, as we've mentioned the media, because this is the third or fourth time in two episodes that 
permission to watch television has been part of the dialogue. I don't think my it's, kids. Have it's interesting. Them. It's interesting what uh, what she finally allows him to watch, though. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, Cal had mentioned that uh, uh, Judd's uh, widow was having people over. So uh, the next scene, we see Angela starting to head out uh, for the Crawford home, and Topher is sitting next to Cal on the couch, preparing to watch American Hero Story, which. <clears throat> is a show that's clearly not for children, as it is pretty much what this show is. It's a show full of violence, nudity, racism, misogyny, etc., 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 and that parental guidance is strongly uh, recommended. So uh, that is what Topher is choosing to watch as Angela heads out for the Crawford home. Like you said, I think it's it's interesting that obviously that's the show he's choosing to watch, uh, and that show seems to be what happens as the show progresses. Here, we get a transition to a body floating uh, in, in like a lake, and we see the mention of the German straw man being pulled out of the lake dead. But as we listen to the narrator, uh, the person narrating is the German straw man, and he mentioned that no, that's not, that was, that body isn't him. And uh, interestingly, he also says, um, I'm not ready to tell you who I really am, otherwise you won't want to watch till the end. Exactly, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> from there we see, um, and this is still like a flashback, so this is, um, we see a group of thugs uh, walking into a like a drugstore and holding up the store and you know they're demanding a safe there is uh, there is no safe um, you know the leader tends grab will grab a dame which is if you don't know the word dame is a term for a female for a woman grab the dame I know you know but anyone listening if you don't know yeah this this obviously uh this event if you didn't pick up on it the, the newspaper headline was about uh war of the worlds the radio broadcast so yes. you're talking probably 1930s i believe it was yes right? world of worlds was 1930s yeah and that the whole thing was a hoax and that obviously people believe that just like they did in this life that uh war of the worlds was a real event so around 1930s this is happening and as these men are, these thugs are robbing the place, crash the window comes Hooded Justice. Um, hooded Justice dispatches uh, these thugs with uh, no quarter giving, um, ending with the crushing of a skull via the cash register. Um, Does he look like he could look 200 pounds? He looked like he could lift a whole <laughs> lot more than 200 pounds. Um, but what we do get interesting to me here is a close-up of the of the masked individual known as Hooded Justice, who is still continuing to, to narrate through this scene. Um, when you can see from the eye holes that Hooded Justice, although is is not is not Will. Uh, this Hooded Justice has has uh, 
has white well, it's features. not the real hooded justice either it's it's but a, it's a dramatization of hooded justice well i see and i was, I was also, gonna look at how look how angela paints her eyes black right well i was, I was gonna say um or at least this this will at least will is in this version of hooded justice we've seen hooded justice dressed um differently we've seen the black hood with the black eye paint uh similar to sister knight and now we have this maroon um, hooded justice with the hangman's noose uh, around the neck and the rope tied around the I waist. Noticed, I noticed hooded justice uh, cloak matches uh, Will's jacket. Did you notice that? What's the the red? Yeah, the same yeah. colors. The same colors. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, interesting. So, so, so this one, this one definitely, like you said Germanic. Um, this led dramatization. Me to, yes, the dramatization. Yeah, this definitely leads me to believe that um, the German straw man is playing hooded justice in this instance. Uh, now the the scene shifts, well, as, back to the present. But the, as the scene shifts, hooded justice is still narrating as Angela is driving up to the Crawford home, and hooded justice is expressing at the end that he doesn't know who he is because if he did. He wouldn't be wearing a mask. He also said he never felt comfortable in his own skin, so yes. he made a new one. He made a new one, exactly. So there are definitely some hints going on here behind the multiple identities of Hooded Justice and who really, um, at least that version of, of Hooded Justice is, uh, and, and what, and let's leave some more questions about what became um, of him and you know, what, what is he doing now? Is he still around? Is he dead? Like, you know, there's a whole lot of question marks um, behind that. Not for me. I got it all solved. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, def I definitely do not. Not with that. Uh, so Angela arrives at the Crawford home. She's got flowers. Uh, she comes in uh, and expresses her condolences of course and here we meet joe keen and he junior. junior yes joe king jr and he expresses his condolences um to jane oh to her and angela mentions well i'm not a cop anymore uh to what he has you know as um joe had offered his full support um to try to apprehend the the killer or killers um Angela starts to swoon and faints in front of Joe and Jane. Uh, we see Jane has put Angela in her bed and Angela apologizes and you know, I came here to take care of you. Uh, you. And Jane's like, no, I get to take care of you now. And Angela says, hey, you know what, well, you need to be with your friends. And she's like, oh, you're my friend. He was my friend. You make sure you find out who did this and Jane returns to her guests. There we see Angela promptly rise up as she was faking her, her fainting spell, pulls out a really nice looking pair of night vision goggles. Night out. Uh, yep, night out, <laughs> more night out with tech because these are not only night vision, but they are uh, x-ray night vision goggles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she searches through the room and into uh, Judd's massive closet that looks like a completely separate bedroom itself and in <clears throat> Judd's closet she finds a 
clan robe. And that was a, that was the big, uh, that was a big uh, skeleton, as Will said, that was in Judd's closet. A literal, a literal, <laughs> literal, literal <laughs> skeleton <laughs> hanging in the closet. Um, so then there's, that, that was an interesting moment there. Um, were you... Magic, were you, why, why do you think that, uh, that Angela refused Joe Keen's help? I think she refused it essentially, I think on the surface it was she didn't want to acknowledge in public because to the public, she's retired. She's not an active cop. So if she accepts his help, she's telling someone else who doesn't exactly, who's famous doesn't exactly have the greatest uh, history uh, that she is an active officer when she's supposed to be retired. But she definitely couldn't accept his help um, in public and, and unmasked. Right. Well, and could she be masked? That's the question. Because Joe, Joe Keen, his dad wrote the Keen Act, which uh, outlawed masks. True. So, and he's, he's, you know, offering federal help since he was a senator, right? Right. But he's also running for president. So is he going to, you know, like where, do his mo where does his allegiances lie? That's, that's my whole question with that. Yeah, it was what's going on. Well, with anyone running for president, their allegiances are, are to them. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, that, that's, that's a great question. Uh, and it's tough because. And also, it, no, it's really tough. Before you also, say that, it's really tough because everyone has said repeatedly through both episodes that he's just like his dad. They say, right. that, they say that too much for that to be accurate. There's got, there's got to be some other All twist right. going on, you know. Yeah, it could be. Maybe he's uh, maybe he's taken up the mask, you know, in in rebellion of his dad. Well, that would be the best way to do it. Later. Yeah, the best way to do it would be to, you know, appear to be in line with his father's uh, views, but to you know secretly be working, um, you know, another direction, which is essentially what right. we have uh, a revelation here with with. In, in his clan robe, as you know, he was the chief of police and he's supposed to be, you know, combating these racists and he's got himself a, a clan robe in his, in his uh, closet. And also his clan robe was not just clan robe, but his, uh, there was a, a police badge on the clan robe as well when she found it, which I thought was a, an interesting detail. Well, so the other thing was, um, going back to the beginning of the episode when Angela shot and that uh, 7th Cavalry member had her dead rights, he could have, you know, blew her head off. Right. Why did he stop? Yes. And why, why then do we wake up to Judd, like the next scene, it's Judd's face, you know, is that foreshadowing? So I think we're, we're definitely being led to believe that Judd was... Uh, Involved in the White Christmas with the with the Seventh Cavalry, um, yeah. whether that's but but like Will says, there's a, a vast conspiracy going on that uh, if he told if he told you all about, it, your head would explode. So. Right, and and definitely leads me to believe that as well. Like there's definitely framed. something going on. Yeah, framed or or he was involved or or, or lightly involved or both. Like it, it's it, it's a lot to. A lot going on. Um, it makes it look well, very. Why, so, it, think it, back to the book. Why was the comedian killed? 
You know, well, the comedian, yeah, the like, comedian was maybe where they wanted it. Just seems too easy, right? Yeah, it seems right? it seems too easy, um, and they they really make it look very probable because he only sustained you know a flesh wound to the arm, where she was shot in some place that she could have been killed, and every you know pretty much everyone who died you know was clearly they, they were totally taken out. Like, it wasn't even close to surviving, where. Right, and that they're and they're the she only should two. have been killed. She should have been killed. What's, right. Stop it. What stopped that guy? That's what, what I want to know. You and know. and they want you to assume it's Cal because she shoved him out of camera. Um, that Cal may mm-hmm. have you know tackled her, but Cal does not seem the type to do that. Right. Not that he, not you know just he does he doesn't have that makeup, um, and he's always asking her if they're safe. So he seems to be. A, he seems to be a very beta male. You know, he's the same at home dad. Um, right. You know, so it doesn't seem like it, it would be him to be the one who had saved her life. Because even if he like tackled the the cavalryman to keep from shooting her, I can't imagine his character as soft as they're trying to make him appear to be. You know, at home playing with little girls, you know, playing dressing whatever with the girls. But he fought this guy off right. um, to to save her. Um, so it makes it look very, maybe, very. Or maybe he shot up in the arm and he ran away, and then you know, fast forward to, to Judd in the hospital with an arm wound, right? There's a lot. There's a lot. being led. Yeah, we're we're being led <laughs> down the path of this is highly suspect on what happened with you know with with the White Knight and now this revelation of of Judd having the clan robe. But as, after Angela finds that robe, then then she goes down, she leaves the the Crawford home, and there we see the painting, uh, the Comanche painting on the wall in the Crawford home, as it zooms in uh, more and more towards the uh, the one particular uh, white horse, and you hear uh, the hoods clamp, um, and you start to hear hooves. As it as it uh, fades to back to the castle, and in uh, our old man Vate. We also have to when they're zooming in on the horse. There's um, an Apache hiding in the behind the horse. I don't know if that's like a significance uh, symbolism. Yeah. Well, there's 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 I two. And I know. Well, there's there's two of them. There's the one Apache. the one Apache hiding behind the black horse with the white face. Um, and then we have, you can see like sort of part of the hands um, of the Apache behind the white horse. You can only see like it's handed like one foot, I think, um, as it's hiding. Mm-hmm. And, they appear to, and the thing about that is, is that they appear to be fighting each other. I don't see, um, in, in that there's three horses there. They appear to be engaged in internal conflict and not fighting against uh, the army. I thought that was interesting. Definitely some kind of symbolism going against going on there. For sure. Indeed. So we come we come to Vate again on horseback. Um, we're riding up to the castle. He stops and picks a tomato off of a tomato tree. And which uh, is bizarre. <laughs> which, not only bizarre, it's just I hate tomatoes. So he picks up, he bites into like an apple, and I'm like, ew. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. (laughs) Like that's that's nasty. Um, So uh, Vate, after taking a bite, this you know, squeezes the tomato and sizes it right off. 
Um, there's got to be some symbolism there. Because he, especially he looks at the tomato with such disdain. But <laughs> I'm, I'm racking my brain trying to figure out what that could mean. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> I think it's my, my guess would be that he's playing with genetics to make tomatoes grow on trees. You know, obviously, like later on, we find out he's definitely playing with some kind of genetics. But I'll let you get to that. Yeah, he's, he seems to be turning into uh, to the Mr. Sinister of, of this universe. Uh, with with the experiments he seems to be doing. Um, so from there, we see Vade back at the table. This time, he's got clothes on, thankfully. And he is looking extremely exasperated as he's being sung to yet again by um, Mr. Phillips and Miss Kroonshack, or whatever her name is. Um, he's impatient, tells them to hurry up to singing the Speed through, he's a jolly good fellow. Both of the candles. But this time, um, Phillips and Crookshanks are dressed in lab coats. Uh, Zay asks Crookshanks, when is a lie not a lie? And she says, when it's acting, master. Uh, and then he implores her to give real tears tonight. And she says that she will, that every drop will be real. Uh, Philip, he goes to leave. Phillips uh, tells him, hey, Master, I need the watch I gifted you as a prop. And the uh, Vate gives the, the watch to him and asks him, "Have you ever? has it ever occurred to you, Mr. Phillips, that you are the prop? Uh, Phillips says, would you like it to? <laughs> and to that, Vate says, there's a, a lot of things I'd like to occur to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, and then my favorite line of the episode um, is Fate says, "All right, Dimwits, on with the show." One, um, so one thing was really interesting is episode one they they showed Fate like having some the, the period that he had some feelings for uh, for for these two his servants, and in this episode, this clear dis disdain for them and you know this is a completely different uh, approach that we're seeing here on how he's treating them you know you know condescending you know degrading and just making it really clear that they aren't worth a whole lot right so we transition to a very crude stage um, with a background showing uh, 1959, we see Phillips and, Kroon, uh, and Crookshanks um, depicting the transformation that John had into Dr. Manhattan. Uh, so Mr. Phillips is playing John, and we see him mentioning, oh, I forgot, uh, I forgot what he leaves. Whatever he left, left inside the um, the fuel generator. Like, oh, darn it. Watch. I, yes, he left the his watch. watch. That's watch. what's so important about that watch. Yes. He left the watch in the fuel generator, goes back for it, of course. Then a, uh, a masked stagehand closes him in, and he's, oh, I'm locked in, of course. You've got a masked person playing the violin and the drums, and Crookshank comes over, and she's playing Jane. 
and she's doing her lines as Vade is intently watching. Uh, she forgets her line. Vade says the line to her. <clears throat> He's not happy about having to give the line. <laughs> and as she's delivering her lines, Vate starts, you know, he's, you know, he's being very meticulous about how everything's being directed. And then he reaches over to a plunger and boom, he activates a fire trap inside the prop uh, intrinsic field. And you hear Mr. Phillips screaming in pain and is calling out master. Uh, Crookshanks is a bit taken aback. <laughs> and uh, to which Vate goes, come on, the tears, let's see the tears, Crookshanks. And she starts crying, my beloved John. And she's crying some real tears because she did not see this coming. Um, my entertainment will not be <laughs> impeded by your emotions. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then we see a change in, uh, in Vate's face as he's you know, watching the, you know, the, the real emotion coming forth out of Crookshanks. Uh, as her character is, is mourning the loss of John, and we've got some great uh, violin music, picks up the tempo. And then, unfortunately, here comes our first unabashed blue, blue penis, penis moment <laughs> where a blue, a obviously Dr. Manhattan version coming down saying, I'm John, and both John and not John. And of course, we're seeing here the Reveal of Dr. Manhattan in this in this uh, makeshift play that's being put on. So the the play ends, and we get the reveal that these uh, stagehands are all different clones of Crookshanks and Phillips, and they all have their own or... names. Are they clones of John and Jane? Or are they clones of John and Jane? That's, that's a possibility. Um, I would say that would be my guess, that the, they're all clones and, uh, okay. <laughs> that, that, that's a strong possibility. I didn't think of, uh, I didn't think of it being clones of John and Jane, but now that I think about it, she definitely looks a lot more like the comic Jane than the movie yep. Jane does. Um, and the and the guy they, they, the guy looks very similar to uh, to John's depiction prior to the exactly. intrinsic field, so that makes a lot of sense. So, if like, where does Vate's power come from in the books? It's all Doctor Manhattan. Like, he's he's super smart. He can dodge a bullet, but without without Doctor Manhattan, he has nothing. So, if right. he Doctor Manhattan, you know, becomes self aware and doesn't think of Vate as his master from the beginning, you know, then he disappears to Mars and never comes back. But if they, being so smart, can manage to collect some of his DNA, uh, clone him a bunch of times and put him in an intrinsic field value, or uh, intrinsic field generator, can he make another uh, Dr. Manhattan and have him be at his beck and call? Right, and have him completely controlled. And know how to, to and that, that's that's a that's a strong possibility. Um, and also, like the watch, the watches, and like we had the Seventh Cavalry collecting watch batteries. The symbolism is uh, very, I mean, it's almost uh, 
cliche with with the, like the watches and the, being a watchman show you know right <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so they 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 really really rub the watches in your face even sometimes if it's a little overkill but it, it makes sense like you said with the name that the watch symbolism is really strong um what uh we also get here is that vate has uh, almost makes the title of phillips and crookshanks as the names i should say as titles as the other clones have their own names uh, but as Mr. Phelps has obviously been burnt alive, uh, Vate looks at one of the other, we're going to call them John clones for our series here, and says, would you like to be the new Mr. Phillips? Uh, he says, yes, okay, well, let's take the old Mr. Phillips and, and put him in the basement. And just, with the know, others. With the, with, with the others, yes. I'm like, oh, there have been others. They, they've done this play multiple times. All right. Um, Maybe the I, play is a dress rehearsal. Like, well, that, that's that's my thought as he especially because he mentions that uh, they'll have need for him again in the future. So either his, um, they have a need for a whole bunch of stacked burnt bodies or that maybe the bodies, go, the bodies will regenerate in some way. Um, or maybe he's trying to make a, an entire army of Dr. Manhattans and once, uh, once he makes one, he'll, he'll be able to bring them all, you know, turn them all turn back. Turn them all into back to, yeah. <laughs> That would be, yeah, that would be interesting. Uh, and, and, one, and each one has their own, its own Jane as a, an emotional connection to Chud so that he used to keep under control. And don't forget that, um, that Vate in the, in the book and in the movie uh, did put Dr. Manhattan into a intrinsic field generator and he managed to put himself back together and he turned out like 100 feet tall outside. Do you, you remember that? Popped yes. The roof. Yep. So he knows he can do it. It's just a matter of, you know, the, uh, the right chemical or uh, the right time and place, I guess. Right. Like, so they go to take uh, his body with the others. Uh, they remind, remembers that he has the watch in his, uh, in his hand, take, break some fingers, some dead fingers off to, to get the watch out. Uh, Miss Crookshanks asks if it's uh, if it's not working, and Vate says no, it's it's only begun, and he flicks the watch, and then it starts to tick. We start to hear, yeah, we start, it starts to tick. We see um, the, uh, the second hand start to move, and then we get a transition from Vate to Will. We see that Will's broken off his handcuffs, and he is sitting in the bakery cooking. Uh, Angela comes in, dressed in regular clothes. Uh, she, quite shocked, looks at, <laughs> looks at Will and asks what he's doing. He's like, I'm cooking some eggs. <laughs> She's like, where do you get eggs from? You think I got them from the grocery across the street? <laughs> She's it's like, amazing. She has a bakery with no sugar for yeah. coffee and no eggs. <laughs> yeah, no sugar for coffee, no eggs, nothing to bake bread or, or bake anything for that matter. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then so he, he tells her from the grocery, and she's like, you left and came back? And he's like, well, we're not done talking yet. So she tells him that uh, she did what he wanted, and he's like, what's that? And she's like, the skeleton's in the closet? And, he, and Will's like, I don't know what you're talking about. 
and she's like, well, you had, you said Crawford had skeletons in his closet, so I went and looked in his closet. And he's like, well, I didn't mean literally. So she pulls out the clan robe, throws it on the floor. Will looks uh, surprised. She, Angela asks him if she puts it there because it was really hard, to, it was really easy to find. <clears throat> so she's definitely feeling a setup. Will asks, did you find this in his closet? She's like, yeah, he goes, well, what floor is it on? Because as you can see, I don't be going up any stairs in his wheelchair. So she continues to question him. Like, hey, well, you hung, you hung the man from the tree. He goes, yeah, yeah, I did that. And Angela states that she thinks, you know, he may be trying to convince her that the cavalry did it. And of course, Will, you know, responds that there's a, a lot of reasons in life to hide a clan robe, <clears throat> but uh, he can't think of any. <laughs> he, he can't think of any himself. Um, Angela, I, I, I think he's like leading to like that wasn't my motive for killing him. You know right. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There's, and I, I think that uh, at least for this for his character, he genuinely either didn't know about the clan robe or didn't care. Like there were bigger fish to fry. For, uh, right, right. of Crawford than, than to worry about his little clan robe. Um, he, Angela threatens to take a Will to jail. He's like, if you were going to do that, you'd have done it already. And even if she did, he'd have been rescued. Um, and Angela's like, we're rescued by who? And to which Will cryptically states that uh, he has friends in high places. Uh, we get a nice little watch call back with the egg timer going off and then the phone rings angela answers the phone and it is the uh greenwood center with the information robocall yes good old <laughs> robocalls don't we Hi, love is them this will will <laughs> yes hello will uh, it states that his uh his dna uh has been processed and that he is eligible to be a beneficiary uh, of the Victims of Racial Violence Act, put in by President Medford. Uh, it states that you should know that you have two ancestors and two descendants in your family tree. You and sure you're not a robot, man? <laughs> <laughs> um, so Angela is looking at Will as she's hearing this information. And the robocall, it's a smarter robocall than ones we get. Um, it says, if you'd like to try to confirm who they are, please say their name. Um, so Angela says her own name, Angela Abar. And Will, Angela Abar is your granddaughter, to which Angela's eyes get really, really big as she looks at Will, Will sitting there eating, <laughs> eating his eggs. Uh, she hangs up before any other information and somehow Will must have some super great hearing because he apparently heard all that information from where he was uh, sitting a good 10 feet away. That's probably more foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Will states, uh, says, your parents didn't tell you anything about me, huh? And uh, to which she says, of course, nothing. She didn't know. So we'll ask her what she wants to know. 
And she simply says, I want to know why you're here. He expresses he wanted to meet her, show her where she came from. Um, I guess the Ancestry.com doesn't exist in this you know, universe <laughs> for her to, to learn her family tree. Um, probably would have caused her less drama. Um, Angela angrily tells him that he's under arrest and picks up the cuffs. I don't know why, because he obviously clearly broke out of them before. Angela takes Will to her, uh, her SUV. And it seems like there's a, a, a tender moment as she has to lift this old man out of his wheelchair and put him into the car. And as we, of course, we've learned that he is her grandfather. So uh, we see her struggling they're to hugging. get him. Yeah, as they're hugging, struggling to get him in. And as she sits him down on the chair, you know, she kind of like um, puts her arm behind his head. Looks like it's, you know, a really sweet moment. Grand, granddaughter and grandfather. She gets him into the car, the SUV, closes the door, and then we have an, an interesting development. As she goes to put the wheelchair in the back of her car, <laughs> we hear a, uh, a whirring sound. She looks up, and there's a blinding light, and a big old magnet comes down and thuds <laughs> on the top of her car. Now, if you haven't seen this episode, um, and if you've ever played Grand Theft Auto V, you know that there is a, uh, a mission where you have to you rob a bank, and as you're going away, as you're running away from the cops, you've got to get underneath a chopper that has a big old magnet, and, it's back, and it latches onto the car, and the chopper flies off with you and in the car. Well, this is what happens to Will. Big old magnet falls on top and pulls him right up. And he looks out, uh, he looks at her. Uh, and very comic book like, you can see his reflection in the uh, rear view mirror as he smirks. Um, since he mentioned he had friends in high places, clearly, as they're high, literally. And as he flies away, uh, we see the letter from the beginning of the episode float down and Angela catches it. Uh, but it's turned to the, it's turned to the letter side and she flips it over. And again, we see watch over this boy as we go to credits. And what song is playing? Egg band by the beastie boys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is awesome. Which like is a perfect so tie in. Dope. Yes. <laughs> God, I love the Beastie Boys. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, if you uh, took note of the sound of the aerial device, it, it sure sounded like another Archie to me that yes, came in there. definitely sounded like that to me. It definitely did not sound like a, um, like a helicopter or anything else, because it, it was too soft. It's like, it was, obviously, it's loud, but it's not like a helicopter, you know, whirl loud. Right. So it seems to me um, that's kind of like a tie-in to Judd that uh, Archie reappears because he like destroyed or, you know, crashed the, uh, the last Archie. Yes. So, and it was obviously an old version because it was like this, you know, Pirate Jenny said this old, old thing can't handle it or whatever she said, uh, right. hinting to his age. And, um, so it almost seems to me that Judd had something to do with breaking up the Watchmen. And that, and that would be um, 
if my theory about Lewis Gossett Jr.'s character being Hooded Justice is correct, um, that would like tie into that whole theory of, you know, Judd persecuting masks, you know, right. to, to, uh, to benefit the police department. And uh, Hooded Justice trying to get justice while hooded. Exactly. So. A lot of a lot of speculation, but I mean, there's like there's a lot of clues leading leading towards those kind of story devices. And I, I'm I wonder who else is in uh, who else is involved in this you know conspiracy because for it to be so big that would make her head explode, like it's got to be um, you know it's got to be some you know next level Illuminati type stuff. So that is our breakdown and recap here of Watchmen episode two martial facts martial feats of Comanche horsemanship this was a super dope episode a lot of really really cool stuff uh, to break down and we are excited to watch tomorrow night's episode three and to chat with you all about it so for your boy Rocky Mr. Magic and from a man, Commander Z-Man, thank you for listening. This is a Cheek Nation special down the rabbit hole. And until next time, love, peace, and watch over this boy. I make an entrance, so back Good. Come on, cut for me. Oh, yeah. Whoa, slow down. Whoa, speed up. This is DJ What, and you're listening to the original Jeek. Podcast.